abgenommen bedauert. And now, the man in black takes from his files another case history of an attempt to commit the perfect crime. Good evening. This is the man in black. A year ago tonight, an innocent man was murdered in a small New England village. He was murdered by Clyde Ross. Listen to what happened in Clyde's own world. He was executed. As I walked across the village square toward the church, I knew I was going to murder old man Hanson, the good sexton, the church bell ringer. Oh, it was going to be so simple and easy. A couple of things left to do first, and that was all. One was to see Father Vincent and tell him how worried I was about Hanson. That he was too old to be climbing the tower to ring the bell. That he'd slip someday and have a bad fall down the stairs. That he might even fall out of the belfry. <laughs> I knew how Father Vincent would react. And he did, just as I expected. I even remember how he said it. Why, we cannot retire the old man as sexton, my son. Why, next to you, this is his whole life. And I remember how I told him that, sure, he was so right. But that I loved Hanson like a father and worried about him. Well, I left it at that and went to walk the old sexton home. I lived with him, you see, but he wasn't my father. Oh, no, he was just an old goof whose wife had died five years ago, and he'd taken me in off the streets. Frankly, I hated the sight of him. But the old man was loaded. He'd saved all kinds of money and no one to leave it to. So I buttered him up for a year or so and got it all fixed legally. I inherited his money when the old man croaked. Yeah. I was going to fix that, too. All I needed was a good, simple plan and a witness to say I was somewhere else when it happened. All was easy. First, old Hanson was going to fall out of the church belfry and kill himself. He was going to fall out. Yeah, because I was going to push him. Second, Henry Freckleton was going to be the witness to say I was somewhere else. Henry has a hamburger stand at the edge of town, and for months in advance, at the same time, every Thursday evening... I'd drive past Henry's and honk and wave at him. He knew I was on my way to Bedford. That's a town about ten miles away to see a movie. So every Thursday, Henry'd wave me out of town, and a couple hours later, he'd wave me back. So it was established where I went every Thursday night. Clever? <laughs> but one night, the big night, I didn't go to Bedford. I drove past Henry's all right, but then I circled back on a little wagon road that led to the woods right behind the church. I hid my car there, and in a few minutes I was silently climbing the narrow steps to the belfry. Old Hanson just begun to pull the bell when he saw me, and he smiled at me. I smiled back happily, waited till he pulled the bell for the last time, and then I jumped him quick and pushed him over. Just a little push. He fell without a cry, and it seemed right somehow that he landed in the cemetery at the side of the church. Afterwards, I... Never heard it so quiet. All the way back through the woods to the car, it was as quiet as death. And then I was right on time for Henry's wave when I drove back into town. I knew then the circle was complete. The crime was perfect. Clyde Ross finished his story and said no more. 
The end is well known. Two short days later, Clyde was arrested for the murder of the old Saxton. Where had he made his mistake? By telling Father Vincent of his concern for the Saxton's safety. Because he'd been so convincing, the good father took the problem to the Saxton himself. And old Hansen, touched by Clyde's obvious love for him, devised a signal to assure Father Vincent that all was well. He simply rang the church bell four extra times to signify that he was not in danger, that Clyde was there. The Man in Black has brought you from his files another case history of an attempt to commit the perfect crime. This is the CBS Radio Network. And now, The Man in Black takes from his files another case history of an attempt to commit the perfect crime. As he walked across the village square toward the church, Clyde Ross knew he was going to kill old man Hanson, the good sexton, the church bell ringer. Oh, it was going to be so simple and easy, he thought. There were only a couple of things left to do. The first was to see Father Vincent, to tell him how worried he was about old man Hanson, to tell him that Hanson was too old to be climbing the tower to ring the bell, that he'd slip someday and have a bad fall down the stairs, that he might even fall out of the belfry. Clyde knew how Father Vincent would react to this, and sure enough, he did. We cannot retire the old man as sexton, my son, where next to you this is his whole life. Clyde knew that would be the answer and told Father Vincent that he was right. And he carefully added that he loved the old sexton like a father. Although, in fact, of course, Clyde hated him. And Hanson was not his father, but just a lonely old man whose wife had died five years ago and who had given Clyde a home. Long since, however, Clyde had discovered that old Hanson had saved his money for years and now had an impressive sum to will to someone. Without much difficulty, Clyde wormed his way into the old man's heart, and now it was all legally arranged that he was going to inherit the money when old Hanson died. But Clyde was impatient, and one day he decided upon a faster way to get the money. All he needed was a good, simple plan, and a witness to say that he was somewhere else when the old man died. He found both easily. First, he decided that old Hansen would fall out of the church belfry and kill himself. And then to prove that he could not possibly have been present, Clyde settled upon Henry Freckleton as his witness that he was elsewhere when it happened. Henry had a hamburger stand at the edge of town, and for months in advance at the same time every Thursday night, Clyde would drive past Henry's and honk and wave at him. He let Henry know that he... He went every Thursday to Bedford, about ten miles away, to a movie. And on Clyde's return, Henry would wave him back into town. And so it was established where he went each Thursday. But one night, the big night, Clyde didn't go to Bedford. He drove past Henry's all right. But then he circled back on a little wagon road that led to the woods right behind the church... He hid his car there, and a few minutes later he was silently climbing the narrow steps to the belfry. Old Hanson had just begun to pull the bell when he saw Clyde, and he smiled at him. 
Clyde smiled back and waited until the sexton had pulled the bell for the last time. Then Clyde picked him up gently and threw him over. The old man fell without a cry, landed in the cemetery at the side of the church, and died instantly. Nobody had heard or seen the accident. Clyde took one brief look below and then hurried back through the woods to his car. Shortly afterwards, Henry Freckleton waved him back into town. The circle was complete. The crime was perfect. And yet, two days later, Clyde was arrested for murder. Where had he made his mistake? By telling Father Vincent of his concern for the sexton's safety. Because he'd been so convincing, the good father took the problem to the sexton himself. And old Hanson, touched by Clyde's obvious love for him, devised a signal to assure Father Vincent that all was well. He simply rang the church bell four extra times to signify that he was not in danger, that Clyde was there. The Man in Black has brought you from his files another case history of an attempt to commit the perfect crime. This is the CBS Radio Network. Within the next few minutes, a major crime will be committed somewhere in the United States. Before this program is off the air, a criminal will have struck and vanished, having accomplished a perfect crime. But is it? From his files, The Man in Black brings you another story of a crime that was almost perfect, of a criminal who made only one mistake. Good evening. This is The Man in Black. A year ago tonight, an innocent man was murdered in a small New England village. He was murdered by Clyde Ross. Listen to what happened in Clyde's own words as he told it to me, just before he was executed. I was going to murder a man, and the whole idea of it felt good. Right then, as I walked across the village square toward the church, I knew I was going to murder him. It was going to be so easy, simple and easy. A couple of little things left to do, and that was all. Then the church bell started ringing. I looked up at the steeple. Even at night, you could see the belfry clear enough. I could even see the bell banging first one way, then the other. The only thing I couldn't see was him, Edgar Branson. He was the sexton. Big deal. <laughs> Dig a few graves, keep the old church cemetery looking homey, and ring the bell. That was old man Branson. That was his whole life. That was the guy I was going to kill. Not tonight. Later, a week or so, maybe. I went inside the church through the vestibule down the long, dark hall that led to Father Vincent's quarters. When Father Vincent answered my knock, I looked worried. That was part of my plan. Right away, he wanted to know what was wrong. So I told him I was worried about old Branson. He was too old to be climbing the tower that maybe he'd slip someday and have a bad fall down the stairs that he might even fall out of the belfry. Oh, I played it big, like a son being worried about his father. And 
Father Vincent went right along with it, as I knew he would. <laughs> I remember just how he said it. We cannot retire old Edgar as sexton, my son. Next to you, this is his whole life. To take it from him now, to say to him his usefulness is gone, would be a grievous wrong, my son. Perhaps a fatal wrong. Yeah, sure. Sure, I told Father Vincent. Sure, he was so right. Boy, both of us were pretty choked up by the time I left. I walked old man Bronson home. You see, I live with him. Why not? I wasn't blessed with a family. Besides, old man Bronson was loaded, saved all kinds of money, and no one to leave it to. His wife had died five years ago. After a year or so of me buttering the old boy up, it was all fixed legally. I'd inherit the whole load when the sexton croaked. Well, let me tell you, I earned it. Brother, how I earned it. Playing nursemaid to an old goof you can't stand the sight of. All the time, acting like he's doing you a big favor, taking you off the streets. You think that's easy? And what's worse, I'd given him something to live for. Everyone said so. Something to live for. Great. And all I ever wanted was to give him something to die for. Old goof. Well, once I knew I was going to kill him, the pressure was off. All I needed was a good plan. A simple one, you know. And a class A bona fide witness that said I was somewhere else when it happened. A simple plan. Old Branson was going to fall out of the church belfry. He was going to fall out. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was going to push him. You see, I started the pattern a few months ahead of time. Every Thursday night, I'd drive to Bedford, about ten miles away, to go to a movie. Got so I was driving past Henry Freckleton's hamburger stand at the edge of town at the same time every Thursday night. Henry'd wave me out of town, and a couple of hours later I'd honk and he'd wave me back into town. Henry, Father Vincent, and old man Branson, they all knew where I went every Thursday night. Except that once or twice I didn't go to Bedford at all. Oh, I drove past Henry's all right. A few miles out on the Bedford Road... Then I'd circle back on a dinky little wagon road that led to the woods behind the church. I found out I could hide my car there and enter the church belfry unnoticed. After a while, it would be simple to complete the circle and pass Henry's again as I came back into town. Yeah, and it worked, too, like a charm. Not a hitch anywhere. Henry waves me out of town on schedule. I didn't even pass a car on the old wagon road and... The woods were as quiet as a tomb when I went through them. I was silently climbing the narrow, twisting steps to the belfry. Old Branson had just begun to pull the bell when he saw me, and he smiled at me like I was his son. I smiled back. When he pulled the bell for the last time, I moved on him quick and threw him over the side. Fell to his death without a word. It seemed right somehow that he pitched right into the cemetery at the side of the church. Afterwards, I never heard it so quiet. All the way back through the woods to the car, it was as quiet as death. And I was right on time for Henry's wave when I drove back into town, too. I knew then the circle was complete. The crime was perfect. Clyde Ross finished his story and said no more. The end is well known. 
Two short days later, Clyde was arrested for the murder of the old sexton. Where had he made his mistake? What thin web of circumstance became the cord about his neck? As in the case of most perfect crimes, Clyde turned out to be his own hangman. If he had not told Father Vincent of his concern for the sexton's safety, he might well have lived to inherit the old man's wealth. But because he told his story so convincingly, the good father took the problem to the sexton himself. And old Brandon, touched by Clyde's obvious love for him, devised a signal to assure Father Vincent that all was well. He rang the church bell four extra times to signify that he was not in danger, that Clyde was there. The Man in Black has brought you from his files another case history of a criminal who attempted to commit the perfect crime. This is the CBS Radio Network. Within the next few minutes, a major crime will be committed somewhere in the United States. Before this program is off the air, a criminal will have struck and vanished, having accomplished a perfect crime. But is it? From his files, The Man in Black brings you another story of a crime that was almost perfect, of a criminal who made only one mistake. And now, The Man in Black. The young man's footsteps echoed hollowly across the cobblestones of the deserted village square. His pace was regular, brisk, until he reached the steps of the church, and there he paused. And for a long moment, the half-light of a nearby street lamp caught the sensitive features of his young face as he narrowed his eyes and peered intently up toward the bell tower. Slowly then, the church bell began to peal, and the young man smiled. He could see the bell, but nothing else. Apparently satisfied, he hurried up the church steps, in through the vestibule and back to Father Vincent's quarters. Somewhere along the way, the smile left his face and was replaced by an expression of grave concern. It was this expression that greeted Father Vincent as he admitted the young man to his rooms. Clyde, my son, what is wrong? You're troubled. Are you ill? Clyde managed a weak smile. I'm not ill, Father. Troubled, yes. His eyes indicated the bell tower. It's... It's he, old Branson, who troubles me. Father Vincent evidenced concern. The sexton? But why, Clyde? Why, Branson and I had a long talk this evening. His health is good, exceptionally good. And his faith, his spirits are in excellent order. And here the priest smiled. Thanks to you, my son, you bring him such happiness. There was protest in Clyde's reply. Please, Father, listen to me. He'll be down soon. I, I have to meet him to walk him home. There's not much time to talk. Now, perhaps I'm wrong, but I worry about him climbing to the tower. When I don't worry about him, I fear that he may fall from the tower itself. And his health is good, yes, but he's an old man, Father. His step's not as sure as it was. I... You understand it. I... I felt I had to tell you. A great warmth and admiration reflected in Father Vincent's eyes. You would have him retire as sexton of our church, son? Why, 
Next to you, this is his whole life. It gave him a usefulness his nature demanded when he felt there was nothing else to live for. Why, to take it away from him now, to say to him his usefulness is gone would do a grievous wrong, Clyde. Perhaps, perhaps a fatal wrong. Later that night, long after old Branson was asleep, Clyde smiled to himself in the darkness of his own room. Father Vincent had reacted just as Clyde knew he would. To relieve Branson of his duties as sexton might indeed prove fatal. Father Vincent and Clyde both realized that. <laughs> what the good priest did not realize was that keeping the self-same job would also prove fatal for old Branson. The sexton would fall from the bell tower to his death. And Clyde? Clyde would be miles from the scene of the accident at the time. Or so it would appear. Clyde let a week pass. Then two... And finally he settled on the night itself. He planned it, just as carefully planned every step of his way into the old sexton's heart. Five years before, Branson's wife and only son had died tragically in an accident, and Clyde had appeared, out of orphan poverty to take their place, and with very good reason. Old Branson was a man of means in the village. It was widely known now that when the old man died, it was Clyde who would inherit his wealth. But five years was a long time, and Clyde waited impatiently for the old man to die. Finally convinced that it was he and the job as sexton that actually kept Bronson alive, Clyde settled on a course of murder. In recent months, he had formed the habit of visiting a neighboring community on a certain night each week. On his way out of town, he would wave at Henry at the hamburger stand. Later, as he returned, he would wave at Henry again. Henry would make a fine witness when the time came. Further, Clyde had, Clyde had a carefully contrived short cut. He could drive past Henry if... Oh, nuts. Can you take that? Can we take it over again? Just pick it up. Uh, go back uh, about a sentence behind it, Paul. Can go you cut it out? Later, as he returned, he would wave at Henry again. Henry would make a fine witness when the time came. Further, Clyde had carefully contrived a shortcut. He could drive past Henry a few miles, circle bath. Uh... Can we cut it and go again? Oh, this is murder. Go back and pick it up the same place again, Paul. Later, as he returned, he would wave at Henry again. Henry would make a fine witness when the time came. Further, Clyde had carefully contrived a shortcut. He could drive past Henry a few miles, circle back on a less-traveled path, seclude his car in the woods behind the church. It was always possible to enter the bell tower unnoticed, and Clyde had proved to himself that no one was visible to the street from the tower. Once he had pushed old Branson from the tower, it would become a simple matter to complete his circle tour and again pass Henry as he entered the village. The night was at hand. With apparent ease, Clyde repeated his well-rehearsed plan. Henry was at his post to wave a greeting. No one else traveled the back road that night, and all was serene as Clyde made his way through the woods, then silently up the narrow twisting steps to the bell tower. Old Branson had just begun to pull the bell when he saw Clyde, and smiled, for Clyde was like his son. Clyde smiled too, and when the old sexton pulled the bell for the last time, Clyde moved quite quickly and surely, the old man felt a certain death without a word. Fittingly enough, he fell noiselessly into the cemetery to the side of the church, 
Clyde took one brief look below and then made his way as silently as the old man had fallen back through the woods to his car. Half an hour later, he was entering the village again. Sure enough, Henry looked up from his duties to wave again at Clyde. The circle was complete. The crime was perfect. And yet, two short days later, Clyde Ross was arrested for the murder of the old sexton. Where had he made his mistake? What thin web of circumstance became the cord about his neck? As in the case of most perfect crimes, Clyde turned out to be his own hangman. If he had not told Father Vincent of his concern for the sexton's safety, he might well have lived to inherit the old man's wealth. But because he told his story so convincingly, the good father took the problem to the sexton himself. And old Branson, touched by Clyde's obvious love for him, devised a signal for Father Vincent to assure him that all was well. He rang the church bell four extra times to signify that he was not in danger, that Clyde was there. The Man in Black has brought you from his files another case history of a criminal who attempted to commit the perfect crime. This is the CBS Radio Network. The Man in Black. Come with me down the long corridor, through the shadows, to the secluded study of the famous Teller of Tales. Welcome. I am the man in black. These magnificent volumes you see surrounding me contain the world's greatest collection of unusual and fantastic stories. Today, I have selected a tale by Mr. John Russell, a strange story of the South Seas, The Price of the Head. The possessions of Mr. Christopher Pellet were these. A bad name in the islands, a continuous thirst of liquor, and a set of fine red whiskers. Also, he had a friend, Karaki. It was a strange thing, this friendship between Pellet and the native, for down among the Solomon Islands, the terrors of pure savagery lay just beneath the thin cover of the white man's civilization. Bring me another bottle, my Jack. At first, it involved nothing more than Karaki patiently standing outside Moijack's bar at Fufuti and waiting for Pellet to get drunk enough to take along home. Uh, please, Mr. Pellet, we're closing up now. You're plenty drunk already. Night after night, Karaki waited while the white man sat roaring inside. Don't tell me when to drink. Now you get that bottle. Jump! All right, all right, Mr. Pellet, all right. I'll get the bottle. I'll fix you the bottle, all right. Ah, no, hurry up, you bald clown. Uh, here we are. Uh. Uh, plenty good rum, eh, Mr. Pellet? Uh. Uh, it's 
stinks. And so do you. And so does this old bloody island. <laughs> Don't you like my rum? Yes. Well, I think of your rum. Oh, come here, more Jack. I'm going to crack your ribs. Crack your... Hey, Karaki. Karaki. Take him out. A few minutes later, Karaki had the white man across his shoulder and bore him down the beach to the miserable shelter of pandana sleeves that they called home. There he eased Pella to a mat, bathed him with cool water, and carefully brushed the dirt from his bright red hair and whiskers. It was quite a mystery at Fufuti, the friendship between these two men. After all, Karaki was nothing more than a heathen from Bougainville, a place where some people were smoked and others eaten. It was midday when Mr. Christopher Pellet awoke, groaned his way out of a painful fog of alcohol. Rum, Crocky. Rum. No, rum. You drink um, too much rum last night. Too much Moijak rum. Huh? What do you mean? Too much Moijak rum. Moijak. Put white powder in bottle. Huh? Make him you sleep. <sighs> so that's it. Why, this little rat, Walter Be careful. My Jack all time, carry knife. Cut face all up. That little wax man. <laughs> I'll murder him. Come on, Karaki. Half in anger and half in anticipation of the pleasure of beating someone up, Pellet staggered off down the beach toward Moijak's bar. Karaki followed him. It was the noon hour of repose and all for food he was asleep. Pellet reached the bar and found Moijak dozing peacefully among his bottles. He woke him with a savage kick. Get up, you dirty scum! Get up so I can bust out! You're at me! Pellet, let go! Feed me a Mickey, will you? Not again, you Now, now I'll cut you, Pellet! Ah, will you now? Well, I'll just fix me a knife, too. Come on, my Jack. I want to twist this bottle around in your face. Jack! Just a... No, no, no. That'll learn you to fight with a red-headed man. That'll learn... He's dead. Rocky, I killed him. Yes, dead. Plenty trouble now. Police! Yes. Come on, let's get out of here. Where do we go, Karaki? I've got to hide someplace. You go house, house on beach. Wait there. Me fix some boat. Leave full footy. What boat? You got no boat? Me find the boat. All right. All right, I trust you. But hurry, man. Hurry! We return to The Price of the Head in just a moment. But first... Hello, everyone. This is Ray Milland. You know, making motion pictures is a difficult chore and doesn't leave one very much time for too many outside interests. However, even when making something to live for, there was one must on my weekly schedule. And that was listening to the Amos and Andy program every Sunday on CBS Radio. Thank you, Mr. Milland. And now, once again... The Man in Black. 
Pellet waited in terror in the shack on the beach while Karaki broke into the boat sheds and with an axe smashed the bottoms out of the three craft sheltered there. Then he opened the trade room and quickly gathered together a big bundle of supplies, including a Winchester rifle and box of cartridges. Next, he carried everything out onto the beach and loaded it into a stout outrigger canoe that belonged to the company agent. And finally, he fetched Pellet from the shack, and together they hurriedly launched the canoe in the lagoon. Karaki rigged the big mat sail, and they paddled out into the breeze just beyond the harbor entrance. We made it, Karaki. We're safe. Yes. Hey, uh, look, where are we headed for, anyway? What island, uh, we go, Karaki? Bougainville. Bougainville? You crazy? That's 800 miles from here. All same we go. My home. 800 miles? We go all fine. Always want to bring you my home. All right, you idiot savage. (laughs) I don't know why you're doing it for me, but I'll see you through. was not the beginning of a very pleasant voyage for Mr. Christopher Pellet. The fear of being captured and hanged was great enough, but added to it were the horrors brought on by a sudden and complete lack of alcohol. And Pellet had been constantly drunk for over two years. The first night he was too seasick to care, but by morning he was raving. However, Karaki quickly tied him up hand and foot and lashed him under a thwart and continued to sail off into the open sea. Now and again, he threw a dipper full of seawater over the white man and occasionally fed him with coconut milk. Karaki was an excellent nurse. He even combed Pellet's red hair and whiskers twice every day. By the time they reached the Santa Cruz region, Pellet's condition had improved and Karaka released him. They were now in an area peppered with tiny islets, and Karaki decided to land on the lee of one in order to replenish their water supply. He had dropped sail and was paddling slowly into the beach when suddenly from out of nowhere a cutter carrying two white men appeared behind them. One of the men signaled for the canoe to stop and surrender, but Karaki had other ideas. No! No catching Karaki a pellet! Go away! Put that gun down, Karaki! We're in enough trouble now! Okay, I shoot. Stop, Karaki! For some foolish reason, the two white men didn't believe a native would dare resist them. And for their mistake, they were both killed, and the cutter sunk. Karaki, however, wasted no time sailing back into the open sea without his precious water. And Twenty-nine days later, he was doling out the few remaining drops to Pellet, taking none for himself. His every gesture was one of sacrifice, that his white companion might survive. Finally, on the 36th day, they sighted Choisil, and by noon they came ashore. There they stayed for a week, fattening themselves on the unlimited supply of coconut. Do you think Bougainville's just under the horizon, eh, Karaki? Yes. (laughs) Well, all right, old chip. You got me this far, I trust you. You know, Karaki, you're quite a fellow. Yes. Yes. You sure don't talk much, sir. I don't seem to reach you somehow. Why, even I'd like to know what goes on under that top nut of yours, my boy. I'd also like to tell you how grateful I am. Wish I could show you. Uh, 
Rocky, now, listen. Me, one big fellow friend, long you. Savvy? You, big fellow friend, long me. Savvy? We two damn big fellow friend always. Eh? <laughs> yes, my word. <laughs> my word. Oh, Karaki, you kill me. And so Christopher Pellet warmed to a man for the first time in his mean life. He actually felt grateful to this quiet savage who had with rarest self-sacrifice saved his life again and again. And now that he was thoroughly sober, he could understand it even less. The native islander was a mystery to the end. The end came two days later at Bougainville. Under a gorgeous dawn, they sailed into a bay that was crystal blue and right up onto a dazzling white beach. Pellet was the first to shore and he ran up to a rocky point to see all the charm of the place for himself. Karaki, in his simple and efficient way, proceeded about his own affairs. He landed what was left of the supplies stolen at Fafuti and piled them high on the beach. A few minutes after, Pellet heard a gentle footstep behind him and turned to find Karaki standing there with the rifle at his hip and an axe in his hand. Me like... Oh, sir. Me like, too. Ah, oh, this is a great place you have here, Crocky. Me? Like I'm head. Huh? Huh? Oh, uh, well, uh, I like you, too, Crocky. We big fellow friend, right? <laughs> Me like him too much. One fly head belong you. Oh, whoa, whoa, what, what do you mean? Uh, I don't understand. Red hair. Fine red whisker. Big prize here. Smoke him head. Make him karaki. Big man on island. You mean... You mean you... You're going to... My head? Fine head. Very fine head. Cut him off now. <laughs> That was the way of it. That was all the mystery. In Karaki's country, a white man's head, well smoked, was indeed a prize. But that of Mr. Christopher Pellet with his precious red whiskers was a thing to be desired above the love of women. And the simple, patient, enduring Karaki had served hard to win it. <laughs> and did it really matter to Pellet how or why he died? since his own race would have hanged him for murder anyway. And so ends the Man in Black story for today. The Price of the Head by John Russell. Before we hear of next week's tale, let me remind you that Hearthstone of the Death Squad follows on this station in just a moment. Next week, I've selected for you one of the most unusual and terrifying stories in my library. Mr. William Faulkner, one of America's most distinguished authors, wrote it. And he calls it simply, A Rose for Emily. The Man in Black stars Paul Freese.
Today, assisted by the noted Hollywood actor John Daner. This is the CBS Radio Network. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Today, this one's about a murder in which the victim trapped the killer. Do you want to hear it? Now starring Paul Fries as your teller of tales. Another story from The Black Book. Yes, from the world's most fabulous collection of strange and unusual stories, The Black Book, I've selected a story by Dorothy Horton. She calls it My Favorite Corpse. Artie Paul said goodnight to Lil. Then he walked across town to his hotel. Lil's kiss was still heavy against his lips. Artie smiled as he remembered the pleasures of the evening. Now for tonight, it was ended. But there'd be more evenings like this, many more. At the hotel, he bought a pack of cigarettes, said goodnight to the desk clerk, and went up to his room. He let himself in, flicked on the lights, then placed a telephone call to Long Island. While he waited, he whistled softly through his teeth. There was just one obstacle in the way of complete happiness for Artie. Just one. A voice answered on the other end of the line. Hello? Jenny, this is Artie. I just finished that work for the office. Oh, that's nice, dear. I didn't realize how late it was until just now. I've decided not to drive home so late at night... I'll uh, stay at the Tarleton. Well, whatever you think, dear. If it doesn't seem wise to come home, then you'd better stay in town. I think it's best, Jenny. I'm pretty tired. Call you in the morning from the office, okay? All right, dear. Good night. And Arthur? Yes? Pleasant dreams, darling. Good night, Jenny. Arthur put up the receiver on the hook and sat staring out of the hotel window. Somewhere out there beyond the lighted city was his wife, Jenny. His devoted, faithful, understanding wife. Whom he was going to kill. 
Artie wasn't sure just when he first planned to kill his wife. But it was shortly after he met Lil Nelson. It had been one of those electric things. Artie and Lil had met a few times for cocktails after he left the office in the evening before going home. At first, it had been merely an exciting flirtation, but quickly, frighteningly, it had grown to be much more. Now he saw Lil every day. He knew he was in love with her. Then finally, one evening, he told Jenny about it. But, Arthur, you're 15 years older than this girl. Jenny, look, we've been all over this. Arthur, it simply wouldn't work. Right now, she seems to mean a great deal to you. But it's just a crush. A passing fascination. Jenny, I'm sorry. I love Lil. I want a divorce. You're acting like a schoolboy, Arthur. Um... I don't think we should talk about it anymore. Jenny, can't you understand what I'm saying? I'm going to leave you. Now, Arthur, we've been through this before. I won't let you make a fool of yourself over that blonde. Jenny, you're making a mistake. Arthur, you need me. This girl wouldn't be good for you. You don't really love her. It's just animal attraction. It'll pass. In a little while, we can look back on this and laugh. I'm right. You wait and see. Arthur... Are you listening? I won't let you have a divorce, Arthur. That's final. I know what's best for both of us. Arthur, are you listening to me? Artie was listening. Listening to all the things he knew Jenny would say. All the platitudes, the truisms, the trite sayings that Jenny understood so well. Oh, Jenny loved him all right. But with a cloying, maternal love. Nothing like the consuming, flaming desire that was Lil's. If there was any particular moment that Jenny sealed her fate, it was then. Half an hour after she went to bed, Artie left his house and drove back toward the city. And Lil. You're really going to do it, Artie? Yes, I've got it all planned. There won't be any mistakes. Pour me another drink, baby. Sure. Funny, she never calls me baby. Always Arthur, like I was a little boy. You're not a little boy to me. Not at all. Will it be dangerous? No. When, baby? It'll take time. Two, maybe three months. But I've got it planned. Then you won't be stuck in this second-floor walk-up. You'll live where you want. You use good enough for me. We'll travel, have fun. Florida, Bermuda. You and me, Lil. Soon? Soon. Three days after he made his decision, Artie bought a small thirty-two caliber gun. Then he began his period of stage setting. Lil was never mentioned in his home again. She stopped coming by the office to see him. There were no more cocktail rendezvous in the dark bar. As time passed, people at the office forgot about her. The kidding died away. At bridge parties, his friends remarked on how nice it was to see a couple so much in love as Jenny and Arthur. They were getting along wonderfully. In the months that followed, Artie sat through countless dull plays and movies holding Jenny's hand. And all the while, he ached to be with Lil. 
Artie wasn't certain that Jenny was fooled by all this sudden affection, but he knew their friends were. And then after what seemed eternity, the night came. And Artie was glad. It was to be a Wednesday night, the night that Jenny went to a reading club. She'd be home around 10 o'clock. Artie went to work setting up his alibi. He phoned Jenny, then let it be known around the office he'd have to work late, might even stay in town. He ate dinner, then with his briefcase under his arm, sat down in the lobby of the Tarleton, in full sight of the night clerk. It was 8.15. Artie acted his part to perfection. By 8.30, he was nodding. At five minutes of nine, he raised his head, blinked, and looked around. Getting up, he walked to the night clerk. Oh, that, that's one for the books. Fell asleep right there in the lobby. Look, I'm uh, going up to my room. Nothing short of an atom bomb could get me out of bed tonight. <laughs> and the night clerk laughed with him. Artie went up to his room... Waited 15 minutes, turned out the lights, and quietly, carefully climbed out the window onto the fire escape. Three minutes later, he was in his car. Forty minutes later, he was climbing in the library window of his own home. He looked at his watch. Ten o'clock. That was good. Jenny'd be home any minute. He moved quickly to the hallway by the front door and slid into the hall closet, pressing himself back into the darkness. Jenny was such a creature of habit, he knew exactly what she'd do. After she came in, she'd lock the front door, put the key on the hall table, take off her coat, and hang it in the closet. Artie stood in the darkness, his hand wet around the butt of the gun he held. The complete lack of any sound was terrifying. But any minute now, it would... The door. She was home. His ears strained, listening. Stay layer of the closet made him dizzy. Then a sound he hadn't expected. What was the fool crying about? Now she was walking, just walking back and forth, and crying, crying softly to herself. Then the crying stopped. She was right outside the closet now. He pressed farther back. Now the door was opening and a knife blade of light sliced into the closet. The coat slithered off a hanger onto the floor. Jenny bent down to pick it up. And her eyes found his shoes, his legs... Traveled up to his face. A rasping cry. Her eyes wide. Artie lunged. I've tell you something. I've got... Artie dragged her into the smothering closeness of the hanging coats and pulled the trigger. As he drove back into the city, Artie knew he'd been very clever. It would look like suicide. He'd pressed Jenny's lifeless fingers around the butt of the gun. It was lying on the floor now, close to her body. It was all so simple. After he parked the car, Artie started for the hotel. But as he walked, a sudden desire made him hesitate. If only he could see Lil for a second, she'd want to know. A few minutes later, he was climbing the back stairs to Lil's apartment. He found the door unlocked and opened it. Lil? Lil, it's Artie. Where are you, honey? There was no answer. He stepped into the living room and suddenly something burst inside his head. Lil. Lil was lying on the floor, doll-like, grotesque. 
The blue robe he'd given her was stained with blood. A gun lay beside her. Marty, help me. Lil, Lil baby. It hurts, Artie. Make it stop hurting. Lil, Lil, what happened? She shot me. She? Who? She, she came in, said she wanted to talk, but shot me. Lil. She's Lil, I'll call a doctor. She knew. For months she knew about me. Baby, baby, when please don't she, try to talk. When she shot me, your wife laughed. Artie. Oh, Artie. Lil. Artie got to his feet. Lil was dead. He picked up the gun. It was his gun. His gun. The one he'd always had around the house. The one he had registered in his name. Now too late he remembered he hadn't seen it for several days. Of course. Jenny had taken it when she planned a murder of her own. Jenny had fooled both of them. And Artie stood there for a moment looking down at Lil... Tears filled his eyes and spilled over. After a moment, he walked to the phone and slowly picked up the receiver. I want the police. Please. This is Arthur Powell. I want to report two murders... One at my home on Long Island, and the other here at the River The Black Book stars Paul Freese as your teller of tales, assisted today by the noted Hollywood actress Virginia Gregg. Dorothy Horton's suspense magazine story, My Favorite Corpse, was adapted and directed by Norman MacDonald. The special music is composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Next week, I'll have another story for you from The Black Book. It's most unusual, and it's called The Vagabond Murder. Oysters are in season every month that has an R in it. And Jack Benny's gang are in season whenever Sunday night rolls around. Listen in whenever you are in the mood for fun. Clarence Cassell speaking. Remember, the comedy treat that can't be beat is Jack Benny time, Sunday nights on the CBS Radio Network. story to tell you today. 
This one is about a crime in which a murderer is trapped by one of the most powerful forces of nature. Do you want to hear it? Now starring Paul Fries as your teller of tales, another story from The Black Book. Yes, from the world's most fabulous collection of strange and unusual stories, The Black Book, I have selected a story called The Vagabond Murder. Eric Patterson was growing desperate. He'd been there for over two hours, waiting. Waiting with less and less patience for the door in front of him to open. He listened intently for the warning sound of the key in the door. Eric needed to be warned because when the man he was waiting for entered the room, Eric was going to kill him. As the seconds ticked past in the darkness, Eric thought back to the beginning of all this. It was in New York. He had taken his wife, Karen, along on a business trip. It had been quite successful, and one of the best contacts he'd made was Henry Drucker. Drucker, the richest, most influential man in the whole investment business. And he seemed to like Eric from the start. And with Karen, they made a gay trio the last few days. Rounds of cocktail parties, the theater, endless nightclubs. And then on the last evening of all, Drucker had said, Look, Eric, why not join me on the Bermuda trip? The best thing in the world for you and Karen. My yacht sails tomorrow. What do you say? At first, Eric thought it was just talk. But he was wrong. And the next day, they sailed for Bermuda on Drucker's yacht, The Vagabond. It wasn't until the return trip that Eric began to suspect that it wasn't him Drucker was really interested in, but Karen. And then the night before they were to dock in New York, it happened. The three of them were sitting at the small bar after dinner when Karen got up, said she wanted some fresh air, and went out on deck. A few minutes later, Drucker excused himself. I think I'll go to my cabin, Eric. But I won't be long. Uh, wait here for me, will you? Well, yes, if you like. Good. Then we'll have a nightcap together. And so Eric was left alone. As he sat there, disturbing images began to form in Eric's mind. Pictures of Drucker, handsome, virile, wealthy. And of Karen, young, beautiful, and oh, so impressionable. With a suddenness that overturned the bar stool, Eric was on his feet, and half running, he crossed the room and went down the corridor to Drucker's stateroom. Drucker! Drucker, open the door! Drucker, do you hear me? Open this door, I'll break it down! Just a minute, Eric. I'll be right there. Just take it easy. I'll take it easy till I count to five, then I'm coming in. One, two... Three. All right, Eric. Where's, where's my wife? Well, you must be drunk, Eric. Karen isn't in here. Was she in here, Drucker? Tell me the truth. Don't be a fool, Eric. Of course she wasn't. Then why was your door... Oh. Oh, I... I guess I have made a fool of myself. I'm sorry, Drucker. Uh, forget it. 
I'll tell you why I locked the door. You see, Eric, I'm diabetic. I have to give myself an insulin shot about this time every night. Naturally, I don't talk about it, nor do I like anyone barging in while I'm at it. Eric stood there feeling like a fool while Drucker washed the hypodermic needle and put it away in a box. Eric watched him place the box next to a packet of insulin capsules in the drawer of the night table by his bunk. I can understand your jealousy, old man, with a wife as lovely as Karen. But I know women, Eric, and Karen is in love with you. She always will be. Look, I, I'm terribly sorry about this, Drucker. Oh, now, let's just forget all about it. Matter of fact, I've been wanting to talk to you about something. I've already told Karen. It should prove how I feel about you, Eric. Here, pour yourself a drink. Thanks, I need it. Um, you know anything about uranium? That's expensive. Know anything about Peru? (coughs) What are you driving at? Uranium in Peru, Eric. Big. Really big. And the payoff is so big that I was going to put in $750,000 on my own. But I'll let you have $250,000 of it if you want it. Hmm. That's a lot of money. Mm. So is a return of 23%. Yeah. But I haven't got that much. I'd have to borrow on everything. 180 days should see the first dividends. You'll have a certified check within two weeks. Back in New York, Eric and Drucker spent hours poring over graphs, reports, charts, surveys to make certain their investment was sound and they could find no flaw. But six months later, Eric learned that even the most guilt-edged promotion can fail. Uranium in Peru didn't make him a millionaire. It ruined him. It took his entire personal fortune. And because he'd borrowed so heavily, his business and his credit were ruined. Eric suddenly found himself without a single capital asset. In desperation, he went to see Drucker. So that's the picture, Eric. There isn't a thing I can do. Yes, of course. I understand your position. All my cash assets went, too, and everything else of mine is tied up. You can't touch it for years. Well, we took a chance and we both lost. Thanks again, Drucker. Um, Eric, do you have any plans? Well, I've had an offer from the coast. Oh, Small investment house in Oakland. Well, I'm sure it'll work out fine. Uh, tell me about Karen. How is she taking all this? Karen? Oh, she's... She's really great, Drucker. Now she decided to go back to modeling in New York for six months or so. Just while I'm getting started, you understand. She's a fine girl, Eric. You're very lucky. Yes, I know I am. Well, goodbye and thanks again. Out in California, Eric thought often of Drucker. After all, it was part of the game. They'd miss this time, but maybe the next. More often, however, he thought about Karen in New York. He'd heard from her regularly at first, and then the letters stopped. For six weeks, he heard nothing. He phoned long distance again and again, but nothing was able to find her. And he was beginning to be beside himself with worry and fear. Then one night, his phone rang. Yes, hello? Uh, Mr. Patterson? Yes? Uh, This is Oliver Fay. I do a little gossip column here for the Herald. I hope you read me. No, I don't. Uh, Well, anyway, perhaps you'd like to make a statement. Statement? What are you talking about? Well, it's about the marriage of Karen, your perfectly lovely ex-wife and Henry Drucker. Where'd you hear this? (laughs) 
I never reveal my sources, Mr. Patterson, but they're driving Mr. Drucker's Nash Healy out from Reno tomorrow. They'll be married aboard the Vagabond. Oh, it'll be terribly romantic, sailing off to the seven seas in search of happiness, nursing their newfound love under the Southern Cross, and... At first, Eric thought it was all a lie, that perhaps he was the victim of a cruel prank. But he had to find out. And an hour later, he was standing on a fog-wet pier, looking at the sleek white outline of the vagabond. And suddenly, as waves of nausea swept through him, he understood everything. Drucker had deliberately ruined him, and undoubtedly with Karen's knowledge. These last six weeks, Karen had been in Reno, divorcing him by default. Everything had been taken from him. His money, his wife, his pride, and he hated them for it. Derek stood there raging, his eyes fixed on the porthole he knew to be that of Drucker's own cabin. And suddenly he realized that he was going to kill Drucker. And a second later he knew how he was going to kill him. He returned to his rooms and dialed the number of the Herald, asking for Oliver Fay. Fay speaking. Mr. Fay, uh, this is Eric Patterson. Oh, yes. Uh, look, I, I want to apologize for my rudeness earlier this evening. Oh, that's all right, Mr. Patterson. People are often harsh. Yes, well, I'm sorry. I would like to give you a statement now. It's simply that Henry Drucker and I are close friends, and, well, there's no ill feeling between any of us. You understand. I certainly wish them the best of everything. Well, good. I'll print that, and I'll show it to them tomorrow night. And, you know, there's a pre-wedding party aboard the Vagabond. Oh? What time are they sailing? I might want to send them a wire. Well, I have my little notes right here. Let me see now. Cocktails at 5.30, then dinner at about 8, and finally the sailing uh, around 2 a.m., I think. You know, it's going to be such fun. I'm the only one of the literary crowd they've included. Oliver Faye gushed on, but Eric wasn't listening now. He had all the information he needed. Henry Drucker was as good as dead right now. About 6.30 next evening, Eric stood in the shadows of the pier and watched the last of the guests arrive and board the vagabond. Then he walked quickly across the open area directly to the porthole of Drucker's cabin. He was unobserved. The porthole was on a level with the pier, and Eric had to lie on his stomach in order to crawl through it. A moment later, he was safely inside. He closed the porthole and waited for his eyes to become accustomed to the darkness. Then he found the night table by Drucker's bunk and removed the hypodermic needle and insulin. Quickly, he filled the syringe with more than enough insulin to kill a man and placed it carefully on top of the table. Next, he found a towel and rolled it lengthwise. With it, he could choke Drucker into unconsciousness without leaving a mark. Now he was ready. An hour passed. Then two. And a third, more slowly than ever. And for the first time, Eric grew nervous. Another hour and the towel in his hands was wet with perspiration. What had happened? Had Drucker, in the excitement of the evening, forgotten his injection? Panic began to rise in Eric, and he fought it back desperately. And then suddenly, he heard a key in the door. He stood back and waited. The door opened, and Drucker, a black figure against the light of the corridor, entered the cabin. Eric waited until he'd locked the door behind him. 
Then he moved. The towel went around Drucker's neck and Eric twisted it with a frenzied strength. After a moment or two, Drucker ceased to struggle and Eric finally released him. He might have been dead already, but to be sure and to make it look like suicide or an accident, he injected the overdose of insulin. Then it was over. Perfect. Eric sighed deeply with relief and satisfaction. Mr. Drucker? Mr. Drucker! Oh, come now, I know you're in there. You promised me an interview, you know. Terror-stricken Eric moved to the portal. His hands trembled as he opened it and prepared to climb through. But something was wrong. The portal was open, but he couldn't get out. Blocking it six inches from his hands was a solid wall of pilings, great timbers side by side. The floor of the pier was now two feet above him. For a moment he was dazed. And then he knew. The tide. The tide was going out, and the ship had dropped a few feet with it. The tide had cut off Eric's only escape. He was hopelessly trapped. He sat down heavily, almost ready to cry. I'm still here, Mr. Drucker. And I'll wait right here all night if necessary. (laughs) Uh, Do you hear me? Black Book stars Paul Frees as your teller of tales, assisted today by the noted Hollywood actor John Daner. The Vagabond Murder was written by Norman MacDonald and John Meston and directed by Mr. MacDonald. The special music is composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Every Monday night, a top Hollywood star plays the leading role in a thrill-packed story on suspense on most of these same CBS radio stations. Clarence Cassell speaking. Remember, Broadway Playhouse brings you top stars and top stories Sunday nights on the CBS Radio Network. American Giant makes great clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, and more right here in the U.S. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order with code STAPLE20. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com, code STAPLE20. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for three forty nine dollars a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.